0: all righty hello everybody my name is Ray welcome tonight we got a special guest and that is Sam Jones and we're going to be discussing classical liberalism and Christian nationalism as the two camps really butt heads I think in this, in this current age and we're also going to talk about America's founding as it relates to you know these different ideologies. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have Pastor Stan Jones on is first of all, I've had him on before two years ago. So it was a much smaller channel back then, but still, uh you know, I you yeah, know, he stuck he he believed in me early. So but the other thing is that and me and him have kind of been Christian nationalists before the label was applied, before the label was cool. So I think that's one of the reasons why as well so we've kind of been saying a lot of the same things as relates to christianity and politics and have been for several years now and all of a sudden i think christian nationalism is the label that's being applied to this sort of belief system and it's also a rising belief system as well so that's one of the other reasons why i wanted to bring him back uh specifically to talk about this issue he is the author of five steps to kill a nation right Yep. and uh yeah, so how about you just introduce yourself to the audience that's much larger than it used to be when you were on here previously and maybe just give a brief summary of uh, what your book's about as well.
1: Yeah, so uh, Sam Jones, so I, I pastored, I think when I was came on last time, I was uh, pastoring over at Faith Baptist Church in Hudson, uh, Iowa, which, because I, I just realized, you know, you probably have an audience more than just Iowa and Hudson, it's a tiny town. Um, so I should probably say what state that was in. But uh, now, right now, I'm currently uh, a member at Pastor Kerry Gordon's church and uh, working their eventual goal is to go into, to plant a church. So a little bit in uh, transition at the moment, uh, but I am the author of Five Steps to Kill a Nation. And uh, basically the book uh, really goes over the, the concept of of what is destroying America. And I go through the Ten Commandments and show how we've abandoned each one of the Ten Commandments and how it is necessary that we uphold the 10 commandments for a nation in order for the nation to succeed. So it's really based upon the concept uh simply put righteousness exalts a nation but sin is a reproach to any people. And so uh that that's what I've been been saying. In fact, actually before this term Christian nationalist kind of took this this mainstream in um in the the, the reform stuff before this current controversy of Christian nationalism in, in, in G3 came up, um I I preached a sermon on Christian nationalism and and really presented the merits of Christian nationalism uh, and things like that. And so I really think this is an interesting concept and an interesting uh, debate that's going on right now. So thank you for having me on, Ray. I'm I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah. And, you know, like I said, you know, you're talking about enforcing the Ten Commandments as law or the fact that America needs to go back to the first first table and the second table of the law. So that's right. Right. Uh, Again, that was ahead of, that book came out in what, 2020? Yeah. 2019?
1: Yeah, tw- yeah tw- 2020. I think I started writing it uh, late 2018 and,
0: um, I, and it came out in 2020. Yep. So there's a, you know, my upcoming book is going to be titled Winning Not Winsome. And... Uh, which is very on the mark for uh, this audience and for discernment ministries in general. It's not a Christian nationalist book. like it's not the case for Christian nationalism by uh, Stephen Wolf. However, it's a very Christian nationalist book because I do talk about uh, Christians, you know going into government and I lay out like a six, you know six step plan for how to make that happen, which you know obviously the steps are easier said than done. And, you know, it's, I have some experience implementing, but not perfectly because, you know, I've run for office before and, you know, didn't, didn't win, but, you know, it is, it's a learning experience for someone with nose with zero name ID mm-hmm. as well, but, and who lives in a county that's a lot more liberal than it wants to admit. So, uh, so, but either way, like, these are ideas that I think a lot of Christians have been articulating for a while. I know. You know, you were very staunch on the COVID issue as it related to churches. And I remember when and I probably did an article on this at the time when Kim Reynolds issued a temporary mask mandate when she just decided to capitulate for some reason. Yeah. Like you and a bunch of other pastors. I know you were one of them. You basically came out with a statement saying we're not following this and you don't have the authority on this
1: right and so you really hit on that and i think that's that's part of the foundation of christian nationalism and and what the pushback is uh here against christian nationalism is the idea of what does the state uh have what is its sphere what is its lane and does it have uh an obligation to be under the authority um, of ecclesiastical authority uh under the church you know or is it higher is it uh you, you know i i i wouldn't want a straw man um the the other side and the, and so the debate on this I would say is really that they still believe God is up here but the question is is do you believe that it's it's then government below uh, civil government and then the other spheres of government or do you believe it's ecclesiastical government and then the other spheres of government uh, that's that's kind of there which one is is to be coming out and implementing and interestingly enough I I would say that the the G three within this controversy the classical liberals honestly believe that civil government, even though they'd probably really hate me saying this, uh, they believe that civil government's right under God because they're saying that the civil government doesn't directly have to be uh, under um, God's God's bishops. They, they, they don't have to, to, to be submitted to that, uh, that the church doesn't really have the authority to come out and to be the Nathan the prophet to David the king and to tell them, no, you've done wickedly and you need to repent. But Ah, uh, yeah. During COVID, um, definitely called uh, my governor a tyrantess uh, multiple times. Still call her a tyrantess, uh, and it, it, and that's interesting because people would say that she did better than anybody else. But when it comes to tyranny, it's either a pass or a fail. It's not, hey, you got a C plus. Uh, it, it's either you you upheld uh, uh, upheld the 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 Bill of Rights in, in America and God's law, uh, which is respected there in the Bill of Rights, or you, you trashed them and you shut down churches, you shut down businesses, and you told individuals that you have to perform medical procedures like wearing a mask on your own body, uh, or you didn't. Th- those are really the only two options. There's no in between. And I mean, you got to call balls or strikes. There,
0: there, there's a the saying that Cs and Ds get degrees, but not in your book. That, uh, well, and, and well, again, she is a top three governor in this country, I think, easily. Which yeah, it could be sad. sad yeah, that, yeah. That, I think that is a sad thing. But I do value repentance in leadership. I think Ron DeSantis Mm -hmm. is probably the one who did that, while a lot of the other governors are, like, kind of gaslight you and to think that, you know, they never did any of this stuff. Uh, You know, so I give, like, the first two governors to repent to pass. Mm -hmm. And then the third person to follow in line is not brave. Like, there's nothing brave about being the third person (laughs) to stand up. Yeah. Uh, It's,
1: It's gold and silver, no bronze in your book, huh?
0: Yeah, yeah. A little bit like that. So, but that actually does get me to an interesting segue because what I feel like is the line of, you know, kind of the line of demarcation. And there is a notable exception is that the people who are wrong about COVID are also wrong about, uh, the Christian nationalism question. So what I see is that the people who are rising because of the Christian nationalist, uh, debate and that would include this channel to some degree uh especially on social media uh i mean twitter not youtube but this channel to some degree and joel Webbin and william wolf and stephen wolf obviously and a bunch of other people they're rising and they were all as far as i can tell right on the issue in 2020 uh but the people on the other side were wrong on the issue in 2020. Michael O'Fallon would be the one exception that I can find. Yeah. And yep. I think he's kind of gone crazy. You, but Michael's an interesting case. <laughs> I, I think he's a separate case from the generic opposition to Christian nationalism that you see. Well, which is why I, I want to separate him as an exception that proves the rule. But I, the G3 people were nowhere to be found on this fight.
1: Yeah. I, I think you're, you're, you're really right on that. And I feel like it, you, I want to bounce this off you. I haven't said this out loud, so maybe it's going to sound really stupid. You know how that goes. Uh, do you feel like G3 is trying to, in some ways, like f- they, they feel John MacArthur fading a little bit uh, or maybe a lot of it. And they're trying to fill the John MacArthur void and, and, and kind of like you said, uh, you know, you you give the first and a second uh, a a pass for repentance, but the third, there's nothing brave about that. And I know there, you know, there's not that repentance is
0: bad, but
1: yeah, yeah, right. Right. But, but in the sense of who's actually leading, I think is kind of what you're getting at there. Right. And, um, and I know there's this, this documentary that Grace to use is putting out or, or put out about John MacArthur and being a leader on the COVID issue and everything like that. But like his church was shut down for eight or 10 weeks or something like that. I, I, I think like he, he was not the first to stand or the second or probably the second hundredth uh, to stand. And uh, in fact, he had written literally the game plan in the book, why government can't save you um, as to why you should shut down when government says to come in to do it. And that was the argument he initially took, and then quite frankly, yeah, I believe it, it also
0: came up with some sort of obscure. It was either John McArthur or himself or Phil Johnson that came up with a very obscure interpretation of Hebrews 10, uh, 24 and 25 that no yeah. one had ever come up with before to justify the locking down. Right. I, I it, believe that's what they did in like April of that yeah. same year. It,
1: and it seems like the G3 guys are kind of following that suit and maybe trying to implement a lot of that. John MacArthur, we're, we're tough, but we're also going to try to be winsome and we're never going to really be edgy. I, and I know people would say, well, MacArthur is edgy, but he's always on that, that, that third, fourth, fifth in. He's never first in. He's never leading. It's always checking to see which way the winds are blowing and then capitalizing on it. And it seems like that's kind of the position that G3 is trying to take here.
0: I mean, I don't know if I'd say that about MacArthur that he waits until the wind's blowing. Cause I think, you know, when he came out hard against Beth Moore, that was slightly ahead of when the wind was blowing. So I think that, he's a little, that's he might true. be behind that's the, uh, you know, it's kind of like Tucker Carlson. I think Tucker Carlson says a lot of things that are, you know, downstream from like the memers and all mm-hmm. that other, all these other people on the internet and the small podcast, but he just amplifies it to a much larger audience. <laughs> that's, so, that's, that's fair. He he was
1: was on the forefront of Beth Moore.
0: But uh, I do think you are right about something. And that is, you know, G3, I I would squarely put in, you know, the John MacArthur camp. John MacArthur was again, he changed his position on uh, the Christian and civil government. So he changed his position on this. I'm not entirely sure what his position is right now. But based on the actions that that he's taken the last three years, they're not the positions that he wrote in his famous commentary.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: so that much has changed and i feel like you know g3 i don't think has caught up with his, where he's at on this particular issue although i do know that phil johnson is against uh christian nationalism uh but <laughs> uh i'm not entirely sure why and you know what their real objection is because after all john MacArthur also said like back in november or something like that that he doesn't believe in religious free religious freedom to worship pagan gods mm-hmm. so that's that seems like a position that's heavily in line with christian nationalism that's heavily also opposed to the belief system artic, articulated by the g3 boys these last few day, weeks
1: yeah it, it and you know looking at this debate on on christian nationalism i it's kind of funny because a lot of people think that this is like a, a new debate. This is this is new. We've never seen this before. But it's really the same debate that happened between Edmund Burke um, and Thomas Paine. It's really this idea of classical liberalism and classical conservatism, uh, if we're going to look at our being conservative, essentially, uh, within Christian nationalism. I, I mean, you can go and look at the United States, and if you understand federalism correctly, and realize that it, it was the states that were sovereign and to be more in power, and therefore to be more specific, we, we were undoubtedly a Christian nation, um, or at the very least, uh, in the sense of a Christian nationalist, at the very least, a, a Christian federalist, right? I mean, it would have been uh, that at, the, at the, the very least, I, I think, it's safe to say, you know, we had blasphemy laws, we had uh, Sabbath laws, we had uh, all kinds of stuff at our founding that were uh, implemented within these, the the two realms. But people think that this is something that's different. And I do think this is kind of where uh, Michael O'Fallon really comes into play with G3 is because um, O'Fallon pushes uh, James Lindsay so much. And James Lindsay is like, I mean, I think Thomas Paine is an incredibly great uh, comparison for James Lindsay, a guy who's all about the individual rights, the rights of man, but has no fear of God whatsoever.
0: Well, the rights of man, except for life, because he's vehemently pro-abortion. So that, that needs to be like constantly reminded and, I've
1: forgotten about that, actually.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I didn't... Uh, uh, the first video article I did this week was I was wrong about James Lindsay because I made the point in September of 2021 that James Lindsay was not influencing the church. And I got to take that back. That's aged horribly. He's definitely influencing the church. The G3 yeah. articles on Christian nationalism directly use James Lindsay talking points about mm-hmm. trying to gaslight us, about us using woke, talk, you know, woke tactics. It's like you're literally calling people racist yeah and screaming you're using the racist card so i don't see how that is not a woke tactic especially since it didn't work when the you know last woke people did it because you know the christian nationalist crowd isn't really afraid of being called racist they're not really afraid of being called a ist or a phobe or anything like that so but I I do think there is some, you know, bad company corrupting good morals and good character going on. I think that's the case with Michael O'Fallon. And then I do think there's a little bit of an inflated sense of self-worth as it relates to uh, his contributions to fighting the social justice gospel. Not that he didn't do a good job or anything, but he's literally saying that he alone taught people certain words like I learned what Darvo was from the woke people who you know from the Me Too movement, basically saying Johnny Depp's committing Darvo. I'm like, what's yeah. Darvo? Oh, that's stupid. That's a yeah. stupid concept. Yeah. I yeah. I I I think
1: that's a of, you know, a very um presumptuous position that O'Fallon has taken. Uh, and going in and saying that he's the one who's taught people words. now, I, I will say there's no doubt he he's influential. i've I've been in some of those uh, those those secret threads that he was was talking about, um uh, oftentimes butting heads with Michael O'Fallon. Uh, so sometimes, you know, not. but uh, he he undoubtedly has taught some things. so I don't want to completely throw that out the window., right. um, But to take credit that you're the one. Teaching the entirety and the sweeping comment of uh, everybody words, and then directly, of course, tying it to Ad Robles, I think was really his, uh, his, his target and, there. And then Ad Robles
0: just wrecked him by showing that he used the modern Bailey term first.
1: Yeah, it's like yeah.
0: You, you just got burned there. Uh, definitely don't do that. Uh, now, with regards to O'Fallon, because you know, again, I think there's a combination of things going on and i i do think there's a small view of god that we got to do we got to execute this perfect plan we cannot take these misstep actions we you know if you sign this statement on christian nationalism you're just going to throw yourself on a no flight list and it's like how how small is your god obviously james Lindsay is a very small god because he's his own god that's a pretty tiny god but Michael O'Fallon, how small is your God that you believe that we need, you know, rather than acting faithfully and praying faithfully, that we need to, you know, take these strategic shortcuts uh, t- to solve our country's problems? I-, I just I think there's that much of an issue going on as well. Yeah. Now, I mean, to to be fair
1: to Michael, it, his vocation, you know, is. Uh, taking people on religious tours and going and doing things like that, so being thrown on a no flight list would be a really big deal to Michael. Um, okay, I did
0: not know that specifically yeah. about him because no, I, I, I just I, assumed he was a you know did a lot of medieval stuff.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I definitely say that tongue in cheek a little bit, but uh, but I mean he he is an event. Uh, I I don't know the the exact term for it. An event organizer seems like it's it's very much in, you know making it sound not significant. Um, he's, he hosts like, uh, cruises and different conferences and stuff like that. And tours of Europe and, and things. Um, but you're exactly right. I mean, if the world hates you, I I thought that was a good thing, according to Jesus. Right. I mean, he kind of told us like the world hated me, it's going to hate you as well. And so though we shouldn't necessarily go out and try to solicit that hate, um, it, it, it is one of those things of. If we're going to go and stand on on biblical truth, uh, and, and so that's where the critique needs to be made. If he doesn't think that the position is on biblical truth, he needs to go and to make that argument as opposed to what are the consequences because Jesus Christ died for us. I think that we should be willing to give everything for him.
0: Right. And then, of course, offer your own alternative, which I guess we'll talk about more as we discuss the distinctions between Christian nationalism and ca- uh, classical liberalism. I do want to say uh, just as some housekeeping that uh, smashing that like button really helps with those algorithms as well as liking and subscribing to the channel if you are new. So that's just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, but with that said, uh one of the things that i'm kind of you know because this is what i do want to give credit to michael O'Fallon, because he didn't really influence my views on these things because first of all i knew this you know i I was much more into politics as a political junkie before i was a theo bro Mm -hmm. so with that said i didn't need him to tell me that this cultural marxist stuff was cultural marxism because i you know i was more politically inclined so there was an audience for him for the Theobros to learn a lot more about these kinds of concepts. But I do, just, but it does kind of reveal this Christian nationalism debate really does reveal those who are really good with theology, but completely inept on the political aspect and civil government theology, uh, which I think America, we're just wrecked on that in general because we took for granted uh, having a, you know, what are the strong men who created good times? We, we've been coasting off of that. So we kind of took for granted the, uh, uh, basically the environment that we had. And we just kind of let our guard go completely numb. Our, our blade went really dull on this issue of the civil magistrate. And I think a lot of Christians who are really good with theology are really bad at politics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I just wanted to ask you, is there something about an m div that makes people suck at politics?
1: Yeah, well, I don't know if it's the m div, but it's definitely a uh, pi- pietism um that that comes into the church and has been taught and uh, has has definitely taken the, you know, it, it, its roots. And that's what we're seeing. and, and i I think interestingly, um e- even with the g three that would say you need to be involved in politics. They care about politics. Uh, But they don't want to implement Christian policy, is the idea. They specifically want to make it just moral and not Christian, take away uh, Christ from that. That is a form of pietism because it's going and saying, well, I I think that we need to let the best idea win horizontally amongst people uh, and not going and saying, well, whether or not we have the best idea, God has already had the greatest idea, but even more than that, he has the authority and we ought to obey it. Um, Even if we're not understanding it, although I would say that I do think that God's uh, that that God's politics are the ones that make sense, that work best within our reality, uh, within reality and work best um, just in general. But I really think it comes to this idea of pietism where they're privatizing their faith ultimately and not putting it into the public square. They're trying to keep their faith separate from politics. Not realizing Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, and that politics, it it simply means the affairs of the people, which therefore you have to be involved in, and you have to show biblical love in order to fulfill God's commands in the affairs of the people, which is therefore Christian nationalism.
0: Right, and it's also a vocational calling, so a lot of these people act like it's not a vocational calling. And, well,
1: it's, it's more than that according to Romans 13 right uh, because the you know the 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 just minister of God uh who's who's a Christian and doing this he's or the just civil magistrate he he is a minister of God
0: right so this is actually something Christians should aspire to do and if you look at the London Baptist confession that basically says that you know Christians would be better at this yeah. And therefore should, you know, all these office holders should be Christians because they would be so much better at this. That's basically, uh, you know, in different words, that's what the London Baptist 1689 says. So
1: it, and I mean, to, to put it in perspective for America. So this is uh, from John uh, Adams diary from 1756. So 20 years before the Revolutionary War, this is what he said. And this is interesting because a lot of people would go and say, well, John Adams, you, you know, he ends up defecting later on, getting uh, Unitarian, uh, right? Yeah. Unitarian, um, you know, getting convinced essentially by his good friend, Thomas Jefferson. But, but listen to what he said. He said, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts they're exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience and temperance, frugality and industry, justice and kindness and charity toward his fellow men and piety and love and reverence toward almighty God. If that's not Christian nationalism going and saying, look, a nation should just take the Bible to be their only law book, and then everything is going to be better um, in the best form that it could possibly be. I don't really know what is. Uh, and I mean, John Adams, we look at that. He's not viewed as even the strongest Christian amongst 1770, amongst the founding fathers. So we look at that and we go, even the weaker Christians were saying we should be a Christian nation.
0: Yeah. I mean, you don't get any indication from Thomas Jefferson that says we shouldn't be a nation held accountable to God. Ben Franklin, I believe, became more of a Christian over his life. I'm not, I I know he starts out one direction and kind of moves over time. And then I'm not entirely sure, but when you look at the founders of the country, the signers of the Declaration of Independence, isn't it like of the 56 names or something, however many, like 29 or 30 of them had like some sort of seminary education?
1: Yeah, uh, it's some
0: sort of theological education.
1: Yeah, it's it's in- incredibly high like like that and I mean um it, it it was whether or not they were uh you know born again cuz I mean obviously it's it's difficult uh to tell by by the fruit we know them but we go and we see we were 200 years separate from them right um it's difficult to see they were all maybe with a few exceptions would have been categorically Christian um, it might just be like Thomas Jefferson, who is more heterodox going through, cutting out Jesus's, uh, miracles through his Bible. Um, you know, Ben Franklin, who, though he was the one who called everybody to go into pray during the, uh, constitutional convention, um, y- you know, at the end of his life, somebody asked him, you know, is Jesus Christ God? And he said, I don't know, but I'm soon to find out. And that's a terrible way to find out. Oh, really? Sure. I thought but, he had a shift in yeah, mentality yeah well, I, I think he he definitely did towards uh like to, in morality, towards towards God, but I don't think he ever came to recognizing Christ as his problem. I think he, I mean, I think he recognized the only foundational worldview that really does make sense is through the Bible, but whether or not he believed in the deity of Christ is the question. Um but even that, that's that if you start to look at their statements, it's categorically Christian. Uh, just maybe heterodox as opposed to orthodox, and not that we're champ- that anybody would champion heterodoxy, or you know, hopefully they wouldn't be. But it's the concept of there is at least basic agreement within this uh, the civil fabric in the the society there as to what we should follow within the law, and this is what makes Western civilization. Western civilization. It was the meeting of Athens and uh, Jerusalem which part of that is monotheism so that we can have equal values or or similar values and work towards the same direction it's polytheism that destroys nations and tears them apart you can't have unity in polytheism
0: no not yeah i can see how having several different gods or even religious pluralism which which would create you know multicultural society of different mm-hmm. religions that just that'll fall apart
1: and right. It, I mean, well, think about the the values of Islam and the values of Christianity are dramatically opposed, and so they're they're pulling against one another. Um, and so, well, you've got some people coming and bringing I- Islamic uh, laws, and you've got some people, you know, coming with a Christian worldview. Maybe not bringing Christian laws according to G three, uh, but going out there and having that debate. Well, what happens if one wins over here and one wins over here? It's it's a a two-headed monster right and anything with more than one head is is a freak is what it's looking at it's leading in a different direction
0: right so as it relates to america's founding because a lot of this would actually be a like because my understanding of the founding fathers is they all believed in some sort of divine accountability Mm -hmm. which would be opposed to deism which is what they're classically you know commonly accused of which i don't think is as common. I, I'm sure you can speak to that to some degree.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, it, it, you know, it, I, I'm not a judicial supremacist, but there are many judicial supremacists out there. And with that, I always like to throw to them Holy Trinity versus the United States in 1892, uh, which emphatically says uh, time and time again, and goes and says that this is a Christian nation uh, as a Supreme Court ruling, uh, as to, or, or not a ruling, but in a Supreme Court opinion, uh, that was given out. And so uh, we go and we look at that. the there wasn't this view of just uh, deism, in fact, within the states, and if we're understanding, you know, federalism within the states, uh several of the states had religious litmus tests in order to to be within the legislature in order to be an elected official. um you you had to adhere to certain uh certain general um, uh, councils or, uh, or confessions and, and things of, of that kind of a nature, uh, or at least a, agree with them, uh, o- you know, openly there, there were blasphemy laws, uh, that were enforced, um, in, uh, after 1776. I mean, so to, to go into say that the United States, you know, is deus or that the founding fathers were deus is just, it, it's not historically accurate would be the problem. And so, I don't know that the G3 guys, they like to argue and say that they're the ones coming from um, an American perspective. And they say the the U.S. Constitution is the answer to Christian nationalism, but really in their their fabric and in their foundations, they're arguing from France. They're not arguing from America.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. And that definitely is I think it's time to segue into more of America's founding as the uh, title of this live stream indicates, because obviously there's multiple views on the America's founding. And I think you've kind of alluded to that, that there are people who wanted to make this a cl- Christian nation. you also talk about people like uh, Thomas Paine uh, who wanted the more classical liberal uh, view of this nation. So uh, I guess, where do we begin? Cause to even tackle this, you know, behemoth, because obviously we have this debate now, but this is, seems like you're indicating that this was a debate then.
1: Yeah. So, so, so I've, I've mentioned Thomas Paine and he's a, he's a really key figure, um, in this. And of course, what we know Thomas Paine for most in the United States is, um, his common sense is common sense. Now that was something that helped ignite the the revolution. There's there's no taking away of Thomas Paine's role within the revolution. Um, it, it it was very key. It was very vital. It was uh, it, it was big. But what people often don't realize about Thomas Paine is that after the revolution, uh, he went and he continued to write political philosophy. And one of the things that he wrote was uh, the Rights of Man, and this was really his belief system. And he went to Excuse me. I believe it was Ben Benjamin Franklin that he went to, and he presented this to. And Ben Franklin looked at him and said, um, "Don't let anybody read that. Burn it. It's terrible." That was literally Ben Franklin's uh, <laughs> a- advice. And if and if we look at the founding fathers, Ben Franklin is one of you, you know the the least Christian founding fathers. And I mean, and people-
0: Ben Franklin, from what I remember, had something in common with that Sam Darnold quarterback at of the New York Jets. He liked older women. And yeah. like he he was he was into that before it was even a thing or like yeah. a celebrated thing in our culture.
1: Yeah, he he was he was not he was not a moral guy. That's that's for certain. Yeah. Uh brilliant but but not moral. And so uh Thomas Paine being discontent of course with not being able to get traction in the United States. Goes to to France essentially to join in their revolution. French Revolution goes so great for him that he ends up getting thrown into prison in one of the great, many upheavals within the French Revolution. Um, and basically, uh, Ben Franklin, you know, ends up going and getting him gets him out of prison and brings him back to the United States. Uh, but he, when he died, he was so ill-fondly viewed that he wasn't allowed to be buried in a cemetery. And there was only a handful of people who showed up to his funeral uh because he was so poorly viewed. And that's how opposed the United States is uh in, in its founding, in its in its fabric to the rights of man, or uh not, not to the rights of man, but to that that
0: theory of the
1: rights the, of man the
0: book or whatever he was right. trying to write.
1: And the the concept is essentially that um that society basically starts over each generation and we get to rewrite our society. And yes, we recognize certain common rights, but it's trying to cut out God and the the, uh, absolute principles of God that bind a society or ought to bind a society out of it where you're trying to write it. Now, Thomas Paine's Stuff like he wouldn't have been woke. That's why I think he'd be very similar to a to to a James Lindsay in that case, doing things that are convenient, uh, staying within reality, being against postmodernism, but embracing modernism. And, and that's a problem. And
0: right that and I, it sounds I, like, you know, Thomas Paine kind of comes across what you're telling me, he kind of sounds like Martin Luther King jr. Where we remember him for two things, letters from a Birmingham jail and the, I have a dream speech. We leave right. out all the other Marxist stuff in the heterodox teaching. And, and, the and then things. we say, Oh yeah. And I thought I was laughing at someone. being. Oh that's right. yeah. He was on laughing the, while the, somebody uh, was. Yeah, yeah. That's what was on the uh, tapes that prevented him, uh, prevented the holiday from being recognized for decades. But, yeah. uh, anyway like because james Lindsay just says we need the civil rights act even harder which is you know a lot of problems with that but it seems like again what is the what is the biggest criticism of the republican party from conservatives it's like you know what are we trying to conserve you guys are just a you know 10 years behind the democrats and you know that's what we're kind of getting from the the modern iteration of a tom thomas paine
1: Right, and I mean, so John Jay, the the first uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court, said this: Providence, uh, and and this would be, you know, something that they'd be referring to as God. Um, they just had so much of a respect and a reverence. That's where a lot of the deism uh, stuff comes from, is because they respected and reverenced God so much that they tended to refer to him more as Providence and and things of that nature. But he said this. Providence has given uh to our people the choice of their rule rulers, and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and to prefer Christians for rulers.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I live in Maryland and we still have something like that. We still have in the books uh religious you know, qualifications for office. That's still in the Maryland constitution. It's, I believe it's just not enforced, but it still is in there. Right. And I would imagine it's in a lot of these things. And if you look at the way that States were admitted into the union, they had to have certain laws that were, you know, amenable to Christian customs. And I think a lot of this had to do with keeping the Mormons out, but, uh, I, I let's uh, go to some comments. So Andrew Casas said a long time ago, uh, can we just reiterate that she needs to go home in reference to the Beth Moore comments and uh, want to say hello to Montana Viking as well. Uh, if you're in the live chat, don't feel free to send questions because I didn't write any questions down. So we're just going we're just in. I had some questions on my head that I, you know, that we've asked Uh mate morning. Sun says, May the same wonder-working deity uh, who long delivered the Hebrews from their Egyptian oppressors and planted them in the promised land whose providential agency has lately been conspicuous establishing these United States as an independent nation and still continue to water them with the dews of heaven and make the inhabitants of every denomination participate in the temporal. I assume this is a quote from somewhere, but we'll maybe get the rest of that quote soon. but i I do want to touch on one thing that we haven't talked about with the founders, and where did the Freemasons kind of fit into this? Yeah, so because a lot of people would say that you know these guys were kind of it was more of a Masonic founding, and I know that a generation later you see the rise of Andrew Jackson who would take you know be a very anti masonic president, you know kind of America's first donald trump like character in some respects,
1: yeah. Uh, it, he, he definitely was Andrew Jackson was an interesting character, uh, to say the least. Um, you, 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 know, I, sorry, we said Andrew Jackson. So the only thing that's going through my mind is Johnny Horton's, uh, in 18 and 14, I took a little trip along with Colonel Jackson down the mighty Mississippi and the battle of new Orleans. But, um, uh, within the, the Masons, that is an interesting, uh, concept that people bring out with this idea, because I mean, you have George Washington was a Mason. There were several that were, were Masons and it, it is possible, you know, no doubt that, um, with some of them being Masons, uh, maybe they they were far enough in to actually know what was going on and that there were, uh, issues. I haven't studied out the, the Masons there. Masons, uh, and Masonry like, like that, it's, In my mind, it's a cult, Um, but I don't know that it was always always, a cult. Yeah, that's
0: what I'd be wondering as well.
1: Yeah, and I don't know because it was a lot more of a – I think a lot more business-oriented on the lower levels at that point in time.
0: Because it was about building buildings, right, out of stone?
1: Well, uh, it it could be.
0: Right? I don't –
1: I, I think there was more to it because you had like the, the Shriners, uh, the reason why they wear the, the red hats is yeah, that it's hats. a symbol of going and uh, ki- you know, killing Christians and dipping their hats in the blood at one point in time and, uh, and, and things like that. But I, but I haven't studied specifically, uh, what, uh, what the Masonic lodge was like in the United States and the, uh, 1700s and early 1800s. So I'd probably be more speculating than I would be giving any definitive answers.
0: Right, because I've had a lot of questions about Masons. I get YouTube comments all the time about Masons and Jesuits and all the other conspiracy yeah. theories. But, hey, we don't diss conspiracy theories here. I I heed a lot of conspiracy theories. doesn't mean I buy them, but I do heed them. I do take them into account.
1: Well, in, in uh, Mar- communism and Marxism was definitely being pushed through the Jesuit uh Yeah, you know, branch there within the the Catholic Church, but right.
0: I mean, especially in Latin America, it was this
1: liberation theology and all that, right?
0: So, there's a lot of that. But, uh, the morning sun clarifies that the quote that I was reading in part was from George Washington, yeah. Uh, So, again, very Christian, might not be Christian nationalist, but very Christian. Uh, let's catch up on some chat. Jamie Starfish asks. In your view, what are the first courses of action CN should take in next one to five years? That's a good question. First courses of action. Well, I think right now we need to have more of a game plan. We're like in the sort of the ground level, I think. We need to have a game plan on what the outcome should be. And like, because what we're talking about is largely the end game. But to some degree, we shouldn't necessarily be forcing that. I think we just need to be in the near term, we need to formulate our ideas for the vision that we have. But in the short term, we need to be allowed enough presence that we basically get the Republican Party to act in ways that uh, align their laws to biblical policy. So that that's my short and long term because we don't really have Christian nationalists currently in high levels of office that I know of. Actually, we got Mark Robinson, who I would probably consider a Christian nationalist as the lieutenant governor of North Carolina. I believe he has announced his candidacy for governor of North Carolina. And if he becomes governor of North Carolina, whoa, you will have a really based governor but that that's my view on the first, uh, on this. Yeah. So, so
1: I would say, uh, kind of, I, I would have three things that I can think of that we should really focus in on. The The first one is as a, uh, for, for Christian nationalists is that you can't have Christian, Christian laws. Um, if we just put them on the books and nobody looks at them, uh, or, or adheres to them, um, just Ray is what you're talking about in Maryland. And so I think, the first thing is is that we need to be preaching repentance everywhere but specifically in the public square. We need pastors confronting politicians, tell them that they do need to be a uh, a a servant and a minister of God and that they are going to be held accountable. They will stand before God someday and so that they need to repent. Uh and, and we need to we need to get out there and we need to do that. I mean, so you're talking that Kim Reynolds is probably the third uh best governor in in the United States, and in Iowa, you have a completely uh, red uh, Senate, completely in fact a supermajority in the Senate su- and a near supermajority in the House for Republicans, and you have a recently flipped Supreme Court justice um, it, or Supreme Court, and uh, that that was very much um, have been picked by Republican governors, and so you start to look at those kind of things. And Iowa still um, has abortion as as legal, in fact, so much so that you have other um, Planned Parenthood bringing people in from other states uh, to Iowa to go and to murder their babies. We've got a lot of calling of repentance to do. The second thing I think that we really need to do is to focus in on on local government um, winning where we can and reminding people that we need to be a bottom up government, not a top down as a republic within the United States. Uh, at, at this point in time, as long as we're going to be under um, our constitutions and working with that, we need to go and to show that it is still the the people who are going and being represented, not that it's the the people uh, void of moral standards, but we need to go into really be empowering our lesser magistrates uh, to go and to be doing what's right, because that's where we can have the most influence. And then the, the third thing I think that we do need to do is just kind of what you were saying, Ray. We need to create a big enough stink in the Republican Party um, that they actually recognize and respect the position um, as opposed to just giving it lip service from time to
0: time. Right. And I think, you know, in large part, that was the mistake even certain evangelicals, not all, made with Donald Trump is they placated him too much and they didn't you know, he doesn't respect that. So if you're just this, uh, you know, If you're coming off as weak or not some sort of alpha, he's not going to respect that at all or cater to it. And you're definitely seeing that a lot more now, I think. Uh, And then Jamie Starfish does a follow-up. Shouldn't Christian nationalism be focused on uh, abolishing abortion, DQSH, and porno? What about reestablishing integrity in elections? I would say that the first three that you mentioned are some of the biggest near-term priorities Mm -hmm. along with the whole transgendering of children uh issue now the election integrity thing i think is pretty interesting because in one sense you got to actually win to change the election laws but then we all know what happens once they win is they're not going to change the election laws because the election laws are how they won in the first place so i think we're gonna yeah, it it's procedural but in the meantime, I do think that this is part of the strategy of how Christian nationalists win is that you do ballot harvesting in churches. And I, that is something that that's a conversation we're having in the state of Maryland. It's a conversation they're having in Republican parties that aren't in Iowa, I take it. But uh, the idea of doing ballot harvesting in churches and places like that, like I, that, that's a great idea. If, if it's legal, it's then do it in churches. I think is, you know, basically the next step. But you have, in order to get rid of election month, you got to win the elections, and you got to, you know. But you can't reject the uh tactical means necessary to win the elections.
1: Yeah, it, and I mean every, you know, every pastor that cares about the nation should be preaching election sermons. You know, instructing instructing the the flock as to how to vote. Um, in the sense of of not just in in general, but going and calling out wrong candidates, those who who don't fit the biblical uh, qualifications as a candidate, uh, and going and saying, "Look, don't vote for them," and then going and saying, "These are men who do uh, meet the biblical qualifications," of uh, you know, as a candidate, and going and promoting that. Pastors need to be doing that. Um, election sermons are essentially, well, and political sermons are essentially what ignited uh, in, in ignited the revolution in the United States. Um, it's, it's a shame that we've
0: abandoned them. Would you be more educated on the whole black robe regiment that existed back then? Yeah. I mean, uh, they're they're kind of a hard group to research, but yes, these were pastors that, you know, preached the word and presumably also shot redcoats.
1: Yes, right. So, so there's, uh, th- there's a, a few different ones I would say that would be good to highlight. Um, one would be, uh, Jonathan Mayhew, which would kind of be a precursor to, um, to, to the black Ro- robe regiment. He died. Um, I, if I remember right, just about a decade before the, uh, the revolution happened, but he preached a sermon, um, on Romans 13 that was foundational that kind of went through uh, everything because there there was a lot of uh tilling of the ground and getting people ready and that's why um you go and you you look at uh Jonas Clark um who his his church uh well first of all um it, it was uh Sam Adams and um huh. Uh, the, the the British are coming. The British are coming. When Paul Revere ran, I don't remember who he was going to warn. All of a sudden, Sam Adams and, and another guy. Um, of Liberty. Yeah, but um, th- they were actually at Jonas Clark's house at that point in time, uh, and he was conversing with them. But also, his his church is essentially where that revolution really took place uh, and started the with his congregation. What was really some of the first shots within. Uh, the the revolution there and it was because he had been going and preparing the two congregations that he preached to to go and to prepare and to be ready and to stand and to to, to give everything you have um for God and, and all of this and then the other one would be John uh Peter Molenberg who um he was a pastor who actually ended up going and becoming a general and you know literally was Black Robe Regiment. He was uh, the one who goes and says, You know, preached a sermon, there's a time for this, there's a time for that. And then at the end, it was, There's a time to fight and a time for war. And he disrobes himself uh, from his clergy uh, outfit, and underneath was a continental um, uniform um, that he went and then he signed up. I believe it was 300 of his congregants up, and they uh, went and were a regiment. Uh, uh, that and, sounds like a. You know, uh...
0: That sounds like a mega church back then.
1: Yeah. It well, and his brother um actually went and uh and criticized him uh for this quite a bit. And then his church got burnt down by the British and he realized how important it was to get involved in politics, and he ended up being the first speaker of the house that we ever had. So um I can't recall his. I think it was Frederick uh Mullenberg.
0: Wow. And there's just a lot of history of America that's not taught. And I feel like I'm better at European history than American history <laughs> at times, which is, you know, sad, but, you know, that is what it is because yeah. there's a lot of it you don't learn in school. And then, you, you know, I basically learn a lot of history from YouTube. And even that, I think it's getting a little shady these days. Yeah. Uh, so, so a lot of these historic
1: sermons, uh, you can go and find at, um, wall builders. Um, okay. and I know some David people might, Martin's yeah, might, ministry. Yes. Yeah, so there's, you know, wall builders. Um, some people might, a lot of people don't like David Barton, um, on the, on the left, especially they like to dismiss him and things like that. But, uh, you, you know, he's not lying to you. Like even when no matter what your view dealer. of it is when it's the original, right? Yeah. Like, what can you do about that? And I like David Barton, uh, quite a bit.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, rem- reminder, you can submit any questions because, you know, we'll, we'll take live chat on the issue of Christian nationalism as it's very much ready. Uh, you know, a lot of people have questions on this subject. So, yeah, two sort of experts on this, I guess. Now, nothing that I understand it is that Christian nationalism isn't arguing for any laws that weren't necessarily on the books at the time of America's founding less the laws that are modern solutions to modern problems as you know, Dave Chappelle famously talked about, uh, in his sketch. So, because you you mentioned blasphemy laws, what about laws about the, you know, idolatry? Where does that exactly fit into, uh, America's founding?
1: Right. So, so the founders definitely did believe in, in a personal liberty, a, um, yeah, I I would put it in a theological term, a a free moral agency, and I'm not trying to go into say that uh, that there weren't uh, you know determinists or or Calvinists or something like that at the time. I'm not making that kind of a, a, an assumption or a statement.
0: Because America would have been mostly Calvinistic back then, right?
1: Um, there would have definitely been a, a good contingent of it. I mean, the the Puritans uh, who definitely had a huge influence in, in America. Um, they're they're definitely known for even the Baptist would have probably
0: right. been Calvinistic, given that the uh, 17 was it 42, uh, the Philadelphia Confession, well, which is so- largely the Americanized London Baptist, which would have been yeah. your predominant Baptist faith statement going into the Revolution.
1: Um, the, so there was one in New Hampshire that was kind of a counterpart to that that tried to bridge the gap between um, the the free will or or the general uh baptists and the uh right. and the per- particular yeah the baptist. 1833
0: mm-hmm. which is what you're referencing is what the southern baptist convention was started on and then the southern baptist convention went completely arminian with the 1925 uh but and then they moved back in the other back towards the 1833
1: in that right. direction it, 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 and so I, th- I think i can uh answer that that idea of uh Idolatry with the idea of what the blasphemy laws were, because I think there's a misconception about that. Um, a lot of people think it's, oh, you, you know, you took the Lord's name in vain. Okay, we're going to go out and and kill you now. That 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 wasn't the blasphemy laws that America had implemented. The blasphemy laws would have been that within your own private home, you could, you you shouldn't, but you could. Uh, go and say whatever you wanted to go and to say. Basically, you could blaspheme God, uh, all that you you wanted. Um, they wouldn't suggest you do that, but they would say you you do have that right. We can't impose this on you. But when you brought bring it out into society and it has an impact on society, uh, specifically because people were would be such God fearing people uh, that it would cause a riot or a ruckus or a fight if you were the one blaspheming God it would be in a position of self-defense for the person who is standing up for the name of God and you would then be uh, charged with blasphemy um, if you were taking the the name of the Lord in vain. So uh, there's a famous case where a guy essentially goes and says that Jesus uh, was the son of a, uh, of a whore and was going out and saying it publicly and it started a riot because you had God-fearing people who were like, you better shut your mouth uh, or we're gonna shut it for you. And he ended up getting convicted um, of blasphemy because he was going and causing the public ruckus. That was the blasphemy laws that we had. It wasn't, um, you know, something else. And so that whole idea of idolatry would probably be that you could, you know, worship idols, I guess, in your your home, um, but we shouldn't be going and creating, you know, statutes uh, and things like that to to Baal or Moloch or, or demons like we have or Georgia right
0: Guidestones or,
1: right, right. That, that would probably be more how it'd be implemented, uh, with how the founding fathers would view, uh, the 10 commandments in, in as it relates to society.
0: Okay. So, uh, Jamie starfish with a longer question. Now, would you, two parter, the second part's pretty hot. Uh, would you agree that the constitution is compatible with Christian nationalism? I think we're, we've kind of established that it is because I would actually say that English common law is the Christian nationalism that we need to reform. Like we need to reform our legal system back to more of what it was with English common law, obviously with some modern updates for the modern problems that we have. But English common law would be the starting point
1: for for the judicial system. I mean, I mean that's what America's judicial system is based on anyway. Is is English it common used law used to be?
0: Yeah, it used to be. Yeah, in, until of. yeah,
1: <laughs> until judicial, uh, well, cr- critical, uh, legal theory came into play and and things right. like that. Yeah.
0: And then the second part is, do you agree that Ron Paul's twenty twelve presidential campaign was a close up we've seen to this nat- on a, at the national level in a hundred years? M- that's tough because I'd have to go back a hundred years. I wouldn't want to miss anyone because I feel like there are solid Christians. I know President Eisenhower might not have been the most conservative president or successfully conservative president, but he did a lot to institute Christian values in society. I don't think that should be uh, neglected because during a height of communism, they or during the rise of communism, they really reestablished a center in God. We put, you know, in God, we trust on a lot of the national on the national currency. And we took a lot of moves like that, which were practices from before but we codified that as our nation's motto i believe that was it was codified in Mm -hmm. 1952 i believe but it was already on the money before that
1: right i so i i think uh ron paul's run i believe he ran also in 2008 and i believe his run in 2008 would have been better than his uh run in 2012 when it would be considered uh compatible with christian nationalism if i'm remembering right i i'll I'll be honest i'm i'm not i'm I'm not super old, and so I was pretty young at both both of those junctures. Um, but I I would I, if I remember right, Ron Paul made the argument um, of uh, of the right to prostitution and things like that. So I don't think he would necessarily fit well, but the the other issue that I think we could run into is I don't know that there's a whole lot else that runs well. And the question wasn't, um, you know, was he pro? Uh, or Christian nationalism but would he be the closest um maybe Santorum's in 20 2012 um would be better Yeah, that might be or, a better
0: example because he he took a lot of heat for his pro life position
1: yeah, yeah life he, at conception he, yeah he he stood pretty uh pretty uncompromising on that and and on um marriage as well at that right. point in time
0: uh, bit and he also suggests uh, Barry Goldwater and Pat Buchanan from Anthony.
1: I, I have to be honest, I was not alive when uh, when they were running, I don't believe. Yeah, so.
0: I can't comment on certain politics. Like Barry Goldwater would have been like 60s, right? So it, ask him the wrong guy. <laughs> this is yeah. where you need to, you know, find a boomer and something, <laughs> but uh, someone with an older operating system that has the memories of these because I i understand, you know, it's a recency bias. I could tell you who the worst like Republican, you know, campaigns were in the history of the United States. I mean, two of them were definitely in my lifetime, uh, John McCain and Mitt Romney, the third one being Alf Landon, who ran against uh FDR in nineteen thirty six, ran a terrible campaign that was basically Mitt Romney, uh on the issue of social security instead of Obamacare. Man, you but
1: the, the question does hit hard though. Cause it, when you go back a hundred years, I mean, we're still basically to this, I mean, just before the start of the great depression and we've had some terrible
0: presidents since then. Yeah. It's interesting. If you were to do like, who are the best, pre- you know, top 10 lists of presidents of the United States, like wouldn't seven of them be in the first 10 presidents? Yeah, most likely. Um, I mean, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe were basically the same person in terms of their quality. Like, they were all from Virginia, Secretary of State, then President. It's like, they're Mm -hmm. they're basically the same person in a sense. And they governed very similarly. And so it's like, same person, almost. Obviously, Washington would be on that list. Uh, But... I
1: see. I, I'm a big John Quincy Adams fan, but his presidency was terrible, unfortunately. <laughs> he, he didn't get anything accomplished because he ticked off Andrew Jackson. So, uh, but, but th- that's probably a story for another day.
0: <laughs> and then, uh, have you heard of Chuck Baldwin? Ran for president under the Constitution Party and is a pastor now. Like the Constitution Party, I believe, is more Christian, but they just have like no base of support like they are not even on the ballot where i live right um and then they I, ran a blankenship from west virginia who co- mm-hmm. who coined the term cocaine mitch i believe was her last presidential nominee
1: yeah yeah um so i i'm not familiar with chuck baldwin that much at, or, or the the constitution party just a little bit but like you said said they don't have much of a base unfortunately
0: yeah i mean it it would be nice but at the same time it's also we might as well just own the Republican Party and take that over. They got a perfectly good party to take over rather than starting our own. I think is cuz I I've been around people who tried to start their own political party. It didn't work out. Yeah, it's it, it's a tough thing. I think it, it would almost have to be
1: um I I am talking more, you know, dynamics but the the Tea Party movement um a party within a party I think right. would be the better way to go which is it, essentially how the Republican party kind of ended up starting to was that it was
0: two parties coming together. Um, but. Uh, so definitely uh, keep the questions coming. Uh, so let's get back to the classical liberalism part. Mm-hmm. So let's kind of define like everyone's kind of obsessed with defining Christian nationalism. And I'm sure I basically define it as Christianizing a nation through uh, the preaching of the gospel, the establishing of the institutions, and the aligning the civil law with the law of God for the purposes of establishing or restoring a Christian heritage to a people. That was my definition of Christian nationalism. I, I moved the prepositionary prepositional phrase, but it's otherwise verbatim. It uh, that's that. What, what would you, how would you define and what do you agree with that definition of Christian nationalism?
1: I, yeah, I, I think that's, that's a pretty, pretty solid definition of Christian nationalism. For sure uh,
0: okay i, I just want to touch on that i mean it's kind of like uh stephen wolf's definition except i think it's a little less wordy or whatever but how would you define classical liberalism
1: so, so i'd say the classical liberalism um tries uh tries to recognize that rights come from god and each person should uh excuse me that i'm i'm I was in the wrong spot here? Classical liberalism uh, makes the claim that liberty is uh, is the subject is subject to natural law, uh, but it gives no basis for determining natural law or determining right and wrong and morality. So they try to go into um to to go into appeal to natural law uh, while at the same time not appealing to the lawgiver. Now, many of the individuals recognize the lawgiver. But they say that we shouldn't publicly recognize uh the lawgiver within the laws. And so then they just are going into the, the the natural um side of things. And so that's where you get that whole idea of the, the rights of man. It's this this natural idea that's coming uh, forth from this. And this is where you can include atheism because cause how in the world do you do you define uh morality and legislate uh laws within a nation? Um when you're looking at that and have a tent that has literally pastors we're talking about and an atheist at the same time coming together at the table and coming into agreement on the foundational philosophy. Well, it's because they're they're moving past uh, that whole concept of who gives the laws.
0: Yeah. So it's basically you're trying to take the engine out of the car and still drive it.
1: Right. So. And- um, and yeah. I, I think that the, what would define them best is that um, the term, like to to put it into into a catchphrase or a cliche, um, we're not trying to legislate morality. That's that's what they would ultimately come down and, and I think try to say the G3 guys tend to be going and saying we need to appeal to moral law. But then the question comes down to well, are you divorcing the first tablet of the Decalogue, which has always been considered moral law from that? Are you saying that, uh you, you know, adultery should now be punished because they would go and say, well, no, that's that's uh, theonomy or no, that's Christian nationalism. I- and so they're really just hiding behind that term, uh, moral law. What they really mean is natural law.
0: Right. And it seems like a very Thomist way to come about a form of government which is odd the whole presuppositional versus classical uh, apologetics and how that kind of fuses with christian nationalism in the debate because you know you got christian nationalists on both sides obviously uh the christian nationalists or you know stephen wolf is a thomist and -hmm. he makes arguments from outside the bible uh largely because he assumes reform tradition in his book which i don't think is wrong because he's very self-aware that he's not a theologian he's a political scientist so he's going to continue with other works uh basically arguing the political science of the time and how it continues and then you got joel webin uh i would probably consider myself more presuppositional uh with you know, big in the Christian nationalism, but not Thomist like Stephen Wolf. And then a lot of people who are very against Christian nationalism are like, you know, being labeled biblicists and all that other stuff. So I, I, fi- I find this to be a pretty weird, like. Yeah. Well, well so, so we're, we're
1: we bridge the gap because it doesn't, you're right. It doesn't make any sense as to where, what the arguments people are making from the uh, theological positions they're having is that it is an infusion of pietism of of going and divorcing um, their Christianity uh, or privatizing, I should say, more privatizing their Christianity uh, and not bringing it into politics is the problem. Like if you're a presuppositionalist, I don't know how you can't be uh, the idea of a Christian nationalist in the sense of believing that a nation needs to be Christian because you're saying uh, ultimately— that the only worldview that makes sense is Christian. And so w- would you be saying that you want a nation that doesn't make sense? That would be the logical conclusion.
0: Right. Of that. You, you would think they would be all all about it, but instead James White, I I don't know really what his argument is. Cause I, I think a lot of it had to do with like the race thing, which I thought he was kind of wrong about. And yeah, yeah it's kind of like in the same, will say thing. If you're going to call people, racist, then stop saying that you're not in an interracial marriage, even though you clearly married a white woman. Yeah. It, Nothing well, wrong with that. I'm not condemning that, but you know, don't say there's only one race and then call people racist on very dubious grounds.
1: Yeah. It, it, it and I do think one of the things that I think will be interesting going forward is that that term ethnos, um, right. And, and looking at that in a, um, uh, Blanking on the passage in Acts where it, it goes in, and it's really a great passage for Christian nationalism uh, because it goes and it defines that God sets the boundaries for nations, which the word there is ethnos. Right. Um, in And in, in my position would be that in, in ethnos it's clearly defined right there. It's it, it's limited by time and and space, and so it's it doesn't have anything to do. Uh, with skin pigmentations, with race or ethnicity. Yeah. At, it's an act at, at all.
0: Right. Uh, and the other thing about it is Stephen Wolf kind of would, I think Stephen Wolf's argument is that Christian Christianity would actually give our society a social f- fabric, intertwining our society that we don't have because we're not monoethnic and that we're not, uh, you know, all these other things, you know, we don't, you know, we're barely speaking one language. We're not mono-ethnic. We're not. We don't have the a melding culture that keeps us together. So, what's going to keep us together? He views Christianity as a solution to this problem, to making our country a nation again and not just a state.
1: Yeah, and you know, I actually think that's a um, that that whole Which, idea of unity with with that belief system. It, it's it's much more valuable actually when it comes down to a religion. Because y- your values go much deeper in your eternal beliefs than they do even in you know your the camaraderie with with even uh, you, you know what what's uh, you know what what skin color or pigmentation you have or what food you like to eat and things like that. Um, that that really is one of the necessary things is going in not being a polytheistic or a pluralistic
0: society, but being a monotheistic society uh montana viking notes that one of james white's concerns was over the purity of the gospel And i think uh, i think that had to do with like cultural christianity nominal christianity and the false assurance of salvation that would be given right so so if oh man
1: there's a lot to <laughs> that you could dive into that so so one of the things that if we're going to critique the the christian nationalist side of the debate I would go and say one of the the downfalls, and this does come, uh, I think AD put this well, uh, Robles, is that it's a decentralized movement. And so as a decentralized movement, there's not going to be one, two, three guys that you can go and look at and say, hey, these guys are the leaders. You know, they're not the um, executive producer of Christian nationalism. Like you have an executive producer of the G3 movement or, or whatever. Yeah, uh, like no, they that. have a board. It's, yeah. Right, exactly. And uh, it's it's uh, this concept of there is a tendency to argue from the premises uh, that other people lay forth of, of whoever the opponent is. And I think that's where a lot of the criticisms with ethnos comes through is through going and arguing from the arguments of the woke in, in beating them and pointing out their um, you know, their ridiculousness. Sometimes it's accepting a premise to make a point, and then people go and they don't get the heart of the person uh, is the issue. It, right. and, and so i'm I'm saying this as a narrative, not as as the the individuals. But this also comes with this whole idea of cultural Christianity because in, in technical terms, cultural Christianity um, would be a bad thing because it's culture impacting Christianity. But I don't think that's what uh, the Christian nationalists are saying. They're saying a Christian culture. But what happened was that's where the, the argument starts. The G3 guys go and basically say, well, don't you think that cultural Christianity would work? And then finally it's, well, okay, fine. We'll argue from that word. Aha, I got you. And it's a that's it's, what they
0: did to Stephen Wolf. Like they literally tried to say, he said, cultural Christianity is enough, meaning like that's enough of an end game for this movement. Yeah. But, but,
1: but James, James White going and saying, I'm worried. Um, uh, he, he has concerns over the purity of the gospel. I mean, he, James White is the guy who said that Yasser Qaddi, um, a, you know, a Muslim imam, is a mentor of his um, in, in trying to go into to reach them through uh, through interfaith dialogue. So I, I mean, I don't know that he has a leg to stand on in this, in this battle whatsoever. He does a great job of diluting the gospel and making it literally a cultural Christianity when trying to reach over to the other side. So if that's what he's worried about, I mean, he would be the, and if that's what he thinks it is, he would be the face of, uh, of Christian nationalism, I would think.
0: Right, and I'm kind of surprised that he's not championing this even more because isn't he both post mill and theonomist? Yeah, yeah. He's speaking at a certain um, conference on these things in Texas.
1: Yeah. Um, so I assumed. Yeah, I know for sure he's post mill. I'm not. I'm not sure if he's theonomist, but I, I kind of assume he would be. All right. So let's so, let,
0: let's uh, catch up on chats right now. Is it fair to yeah. say that Christian nationalism would allow Pentecostals to speak in tongues in private, but not in public setting or public gatherings? i would say no actually yeah i actually believe in a wide tent which is why i'm not like i do believe that the end game should be first table the law the end game because it's incremental to get to an end game like we got a society that has you know that's needs baby milk right now but we're gonna teach them solid food over a period of time as we introduce more and more legislation to towards an end goal uh so not everything has to be all at once, but as far as the Pentecostal thing is, we got to acknowledge that Pentecostals have numbers. And I don't think that Pentecostalism necessarily sets you outside of the, you know, orthodoxy small O. Uh, I I think there are a lot of Pentecostals that are, you know, you know, the hyper charismatic camps, but I don't think that, you know, like Kerry Gordon, who came up is charismatic, uh, but he's also not, egalitarian which i think is actually probably the biggest distinguishing factor uh between successful and uh theologically not as robust or charismaticism
1: yeah well i i mean i i would be saying if if we look at the the movement as a uh as a whole um pentecostals were way earlier to the game uh in christian nationalism um or at least being called christian nationalists than than non-pentecostals i mean uh, you've got, yeah. Well, I, Ken Peters, his church not is literally, Orthodox. yeah. Ken Peters, his church is literally called Patriot Church. Um, Greg Locke would be, uh, also Pentecostal. And I mean, undoubtedly, not sure how,
0: uh, solid he is though.
1: Uh, well, uh, but I mean, I'm just saying like, at least with, within this, this kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, th- I, I'm not vouching for, for some of the things that, that he's done, but just in the, in uh, terms the kind of getting scope.
0: labeled. I think right. you got a real point there. Uh, and so I think that's one. And that's why along the point that I was making about Big Ten is I'm not sure that we can go write the Sabbath laws because we got a lot of Christian denominations out there that have very differing views on the Sabbath. I assume that G3 would probably hold more to a John MacArthur position on the Sabbath, which is it doesn't really apply anymore. But the 1689 is very Sabbatarian. So we we have to actually work that out before we like go that far but until then we're going to be big tent and on the things that we need to be big tent on and i don't know why panic Pente- like now is there someone in this public space that's going to interpret the tongues that's my little joke there but uh i'm not sure about the whole question of pentecostal speaking in tongues and how that would be blasphemy yet in and of itself cuz i'm not sure but,
1: well, I mean, if G3 chose the, uh, the evangelical Pope, um, I, I believe they would choose John MacArthur and he would undoubtedly outlaw,
0: undoubtedly, it.
1: um, <laughs> you know, so I suppose if G3 got their way, because they're the ones pushing for the, pen or for the, uh, uh evangelical Pope, which um, I, I suppose... think is
0: their misinterpretation of the Christian Prince, yeah. which is supposed to be a, a Caesarean figure, uh. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, and I think that that also gets would get into some interesting things. Um, I because it it depends on how like what what type of government people would be looking for, and um, you know the United States has a very distinct type of government, one that's really hasn't been seen before, and and I would even say since, although I don't think we're really the type of government that we are on, on paper. But it's it's not a you know it's not a monarchy um, in the United States. but I would say that biblically there I'm not a I mean there's nothing wrong inherently with a monarchy as long as it's uh, a uh, a, re, a monarchical republic uh, and in the sense that it's Lex Rex that the law is above the king or, or the. Priest. yeah, I don't
0: understand the Christian put Christians that are pushing for monarchy. I just don't think it makes sense. like that didn't work in the Bible.
1: Yeah, uh, well, it, it didn't consistently work anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, they had great leaders, but you know, a great king is one in a thousand. So, uh, then we have Innovation HQ. Do you know that the Netherlands has a Calvinist Christian political party? I don't. I didn't know that they still had one, but I know yeah. that Netherlands has moved to the right in this previous election cycle because of you know. Uh, the whole global warming push and the farmers and stuff like that, they had major gains, but I don't know if, a, if they had a Calvinist political party that was able to capitalize on that.
1: Yeah. I, I was, was unaware um, of that. I, I would have assumed uh, Poland probably would have something like that. Cause they've, they thought that they were more Catholic. Yeah. that I was going to say, Hungary, Catholic, not.
0: Hungary is very, is like, Half Catholic, half Calvinist. Interesting. And, you know, that's actually a pretty good recipe for a nation, it seems, because Uganda is very Calvinist and then Catholic as well. So, very interesting combinations you get with with those two political voting blocks. Uh, and then Brian Babe sent a super chat. Got to give a shout out. We're going to call this a sponsorship because Brian Babe's, if you're not sub-, sub to her channel, go and sub to her channel uh i've been on there a couple times she's been on here a couple of times and will probably be back on definitely in the next you know two months she'll be back on this channel for sure uh southern baptist news ramps up uh so definitely sub to brian babes uh catching up on chat and uh this is from montana viking and believers partnering with unbelievers to enact cultural christianity think of the apostate pro-life movement who will accept uh, homosexual, transvestite, pro-lifers, Mormon, pro-lifers? Very big tent. Abolitionism is solid, and yeah, there is an issue that we do see in politics that big big tents can't govern. This was the problem with the Trump administration to a large degree. I think this has been a problem with a lot of Republicans. Like they're they're so focused on creating a big tent. This is definitely the problem with James Lindsay. You're you're focused on trying to build a big tent that you're not focused on taking any action.
1: Yeah, and that's and not going to work. It, and I mean, w- with that, I think it really comes down to do do we believe that our job um, is to be right in the eyes eyes of God and to do what's right no matter what? Um, or do do we believe that we should try to compromise for this for the sake of winning, uh, winning in the end? Um, I, I think the Christian's called to to go to be faithful. Duty is ours, results are God's. That's what uh, John Quincy Adams said.
0: And the other thing is, do we need a majority? I don't think the answer is yes, because a committed minority will always drive the nation. Most people go most people go with winners. They fall in line. They're they're sheep that fall in line with the winning side. That's why wokeism was winning the day, because in 2020 everyone was doing, you know, you know, what did white women and Muslims have in common? They both love them black squares. So that's what was going on in 2020 and all of a sudden the tables have turned um my how to turn tables michael scott famously said as (laughs) the uh wokeness it's killing hollywood it's killing bud light because people are not going to go along with it now it's actually cool to hate wokeness to the point where even woke comedy had to make fun of woke comedy if you watched any clips of the velma series that came out which you know i i i watch a lot of pop culture stuff on youtube so yes i have seen plenty of clips of that type of stuff it's like they're or even uh the movie with eddie murphy and jonah hill that came out earlier this year called you people which wanted to be very woke which was you know how do you make an eddie murphy movie less funny it's like you just make it really woke and it's like but they're trying to make fun of wokeness because it's they know it's gone too far but they're also heavy on the messaging so it just doesn't really work but uh it's an interesting question so people go along with the prevailing wind i I think is what i'm largely getting at if someone Mm -hmm. that's why they put out all these political polls to depress a base like that's what the that's what the purposes of polls are is that you know you're sending a message in, in a lot of cases you're trying to say that we're a viable campaign so join us the momentum's on our side. We're trying to say they're getting the water to stay home. So, you know, people go along with winners because people don't like to vote for the loser.
1: Right. And so if you can convince somebody that they're um, not, not a winner, um, that's, that's often how, that's often how the Republicans are defeated within the primaries is simply by going and saying, well, they're not electable and it has no, basis and merit, it just has to do with the base going and saying, like, well, look, uh, Mitt Romney's electable. And you're like, well, obviously he wasn't.
0: <laughs> you're right. Because he ran a terrible campaign and he won back North Carolina. And that's the only state that he won back, I think. Uh we got a good question here. Oh wait, actually let's go in order. Uh What about laws on women being pastors? I think that's a grayer area. It shouldn't be. I mean, I'm firmly against women pastors, not laws against it, but as, yeah, that's, that's a tougher argument to make from a Christian standpoint. If you're trying to build a creedal nation like a nation that recognizes creeds, Christian creeds, and the Christian creeds don't explicitly condemn that. And I'm referencing like Nicaea and Athanasian and apostles, like they don't address that issue. So I think it's a tougher hill to climb.
1: Yeah. And and I mean, there's, there's no, um,
0: American precedent.
1: Well, well there, there's no, uh, biblical precedent either. Um, now, I think a lot of it would be because it's yeah, I, I, I'm i with you. I don't I, I think it's hard to be the husband of one wife if you're a woman. Um, and, it, you, you know, you, you go and you look at that, though, there, there are no civil laws uh, against it and things like that. And so it would probably be a that's uh, an ecclesiastical. It, right. It'd be punting sphere. to the ecclesiastical sphere.
0: Uh, Josh. I assume that's Josh boot vice. Is he a pastor? Um, I assume. Yeah. Uh, word of faith. This is a good question. And I do have a solid answer for this. Would wouldn't word of faith phonies. This is from Jamie starfish like Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn be imprisoned or executed under Christian nationalism, unless they stop speaking publicly or the government word for that is recant. Um, I would actually say yes. Because I, I I added this was one of my edits to the statement on Christian nationalism and the gospel was that I added financial scams to the the limitate it was a section on limiting religious liberty like you don't have the right to mutilate and sadomath – religious masochism practices I added you know female genital mutilation you don't have a right to do that and then I also added financial scams because a lot of people do financial scams in the name of religion. And I think now the government can crack down on that freely. You don't, you can't just say, Hey, we're a church. If you're, you know, selling wonder words or, uh, you know, a lot of the, I I don't operate in clown world when it comes to Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland, but so I'm not like super familiar, but if you're selling prayers and stuff like that, like, and I believe the government has gone after Paula white for this in the past. So,
1: so the, the difficult thing that would come is that, um, you would have to have the, the necessary proof. So when we're, when you're talking about Christian nationalism and you're talking about, uh, theonomy and God's law, it's not just accepting the, the, the law itself, but then in enabling it, um, you know, you'd have to have a certain amount of witnesses and things like that. And so the question would be, um, if there'd be a burden of proof, um, but I, obviously I think you'd if there would be a civil law that would be broken, it would have to be on the uh, on the financial side of things, I, I think, on that, uh, because they would still technically be even though heterodox, um, it would still be categorically Christian in that.
0: Yeah, so. Yeah, obviously, you know, Church of Scientology would be shut down for financial scams, among other reasons. And I think a lot of these other word of faith people would be similar, would run into some major issues. I mean, you got walls with, you know, stacks of cash in them. Like, what's going on, Joel Osteen? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And that was a, and I got to thank you for the sponsorship uh, from Breein Babes. And this is her channel. Uh, other Paul is in the chat. Uh, he says that we need tests for religious uh, test oats for office. And believe we, we used to have that in this country. And I don't I know you're Australian, so I can't speak to that as much. Uh, let's Jamie Starfish again. Let's accept G3's premise for a thought experiment. Would Protestant Pope John MacArthur's ruling be worse than what we have now? Yeah, exactly. Like they, um, they make these arguments like they're improved, like the, this would not be an improvement. It, it would be worse if you're Pentecostal, I suppose, but you, you, you know, I so I'm not I, I think
1: I'm I'm kind of known as not a huge fan of John MacArthur. Um MacArthur told the police chief who went to his church at the time, I believe this was I don't remember if this was in the 90s or 80s. Yeah,
0: it's way back.
1: Yeah, um, to to remove the christians from the the abortion centers uh or, or abortion um murder mills and, and to go and to do that who they were just actually sitting out in front of it and linking up arms so in in some questions i would kind of say i don't know that it would be much different um, than what we have because i don't know that he has as much conviction as what a, a lot of people would say now this is more my my personal opinion um but but i think he's a lot more financially motivated than a lot of people would be comfortable with admitting. Um I think you can see his the opening of the church oddly uh would kind of align with how much money they took from the government that they said that they gave back. Um but it's they didn't say you know, that.
0: They got their yeah. money really late though, which was odd. They were an outlier in that direction because yeah. I charted all of the stuff way back in late yeah. 2020. So uh,
1: but but I don't think that if the G three guys I think the G three guys would think that it'd be better. <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the interesting thing if from their own premise. I think it would be better at least in their thoughts. But I, I probably just don't have a good view of John MacArthur.
0: Uh, and then, other Paul says. <laughs> then we got a, in my. But also, in my opinion, attestation from a trusted pastoral authorities is also as to the consistent belief in conduct of a person, test oaths can easily be accepted by duplicity candidates. And we see that in seminaries. You give them a oath and you even give them they probably need letters of recommendation to take a job. And you still got people teaching heterodoxy in seminaries. Smart uh Simple fit has a pretty good question. Women being silent in church in accordance to the law. No, is that not what is stated? So is that basically asking whether Christian nationalism means that the government would enforce this? So
1: so I the, the way that I would understand Christian nationalism is that the state would be subject um to to the church within the, the concept of going, and the church can correct the state and uh, when the state gets out of line, the church can come in and and hit the state over the head, kind of like Nathan did uh, to David. But it's not that the uh, that the state can go in and enforce certain laws to the church unless it's outside of uh, what we would call uh, Christianity. and And so I would say that the the state wouldn't have a an interest in that because they would be going and giving that to the sphere of the church
0: yes i i would also agree that this is a church sphere issue and uh the religious abstination is a doctrine that we have in our legal system as far as like churches are very hesitant to weigh on on or sorry courts are very hesitant to weigh in on church issues for this do- reason because they're not they they don't want to make religious determinations so this if a church and that would actually be uh the state overstepping its bounds so Christian nationalism recognizes that a state has their domain and the church has their domain. And especially when you're talking about behavior inside of a church, that is a church's duty to correct that, not the state. Yeah. It, uh, it, good it, question, yeah, though.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the the state has the sword. The church has excommunication. It'd be more of an excommunication type punishment.
0: Uh, Anthony says, Pope MacArthur succeeded by Pope Bockham. <laughs>
1: I'll tell you what, I wouldn't argue with that Pope. That's for sure. Um, I
0: think he'll be Zambia's Christian Pope, (laughs) Zambian Pope, because that's where he's at. Like not even in the United States these days. Uh, I I think I would
1: disagree with, with with Vody on on a lot of stuff, but just not to his face. Right. That's uh... (laughs) Uh,
0: if Joseph Smith, Would have been executed as a false prophet. Think about how many people would have not been deceived. And again, the Mormons were driven out of New York and then Missouri. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why Utah is Mormon land. Mm -hmm. It's because they were driven out that they had to basically make their own. They had to basically uh, settle in a place where they would be a majority. And then they brought their beehive fetish with them.
1: Well, and it's it's kind of hard to believe because um of the the sexual uh, immorality within our nation today, but um the Republican Party a, a lot of it was founded on standing up against uh polygamy which is being pushed of course by Mormonism. Um in that point in time that that was uh one half of of the the Republican Party kind of coming together with that it was on the marriage issue. And um one of the understandings that we had when we actually stopped and thought about political science and uh, we actually stopped and thought about uh, political philosophy is that the foundation of a nation or the the, the backbone of a nation, maybe would be a better way to put it, is the family itself. And so when you destroy the family unit, it is an attack on the nation itself. And that's why there would be such a stance against polygamy. Um, Even in the early Roman Empire, uh, before they went completely crazy and completely you know into immorality but while they're on that build and they were strong it, it it was the idea that adultery was viewed as uh treason because the family is um is the strong point in a nation and so uh that's that's kind of one of those ideas uh that also needs to to come in and look at that but i i think that would be uh, I, one of those arguments with joseph joseph smith against joseph smith there It's it's interesting
0: that you bring up the early Roman empire. And if you look at like the decline of the Republic was very much, you know, a time of immorality and, and debauchery even by Roman standards, which is why they debate whether, you know, Caesar was a result of that versus, you know, the fact is if you look at Caesar's character, he's actually more aligned with Roman values of that time than, you know, a lot of his detractors. So and again, Caesarian politics. Yeah, that's what the Christian prince was supposed to represent. Was that you know someone who represented Christianity, and also spoke to that uh, for the people. Um, uh, Other Paul says, sorry, the Protestant Pope is the new chair of GAFCON, the Anglican Primate of Rwanda's most uh, reverent uh, Laurent Mabanda. See that. Everyone- There are Protestant popes out there and I'm actually against the idea of a Protestant pope. Uh, In my upcoming book, I have an entire chapter about why we should not erect Protestant popes. And I do name drop (laughs) John MacArthur in that chapter, actually. And again, the G3 people accusing other Protestant groups of wanting a Protestant pope is supremely ironic in the American context because I don't think like maybe Tim Keller to some degree, but I feel like the people that are in Tim Keller's camp also like other teachers as well that are woke. But the John MacArthur people love them some John MacArthur, yeah. And no one is his equal, right? It's not first. And I'm I know I'm drawing a generalization and a caricature, but uh that it, it it's true to some degree. It's true to some degree. And I'm not a John MacArthur hater. I'm not a John MacArthur fanboy either. I know you're you've apparently admitted you're not a huge fan of John MacArthur, but John MacArthur has gotten better on this specific issue, but he's done so in a way that didn't really flow down with the G three and a lot of the other people. So I think it's interesting to see what his actual position on, but you brought up the idea of them posturing. Cause they, you know, admittedly in the next 10 years, we're probably not going to have John MacArthur alive statistically speaking.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And or you, so who knows?
1: Well, and, and and I mean, Sproul's gone and as well was, you know, a huge hit to that crowd, which is kind of a, a thing. And so Sproul and MacArthur, who's going to fill that void um, within that? I
0: I think there's a lot of posturing going on. Right. There. So turf wars is what we're at. Mm-hmm. And I do think that's what's going on. I think uh, was it was 80 Robos made that point because he's putting out some of his best content in the last few weeks. Uh, and he basically talked about, you know, these guys are, pos- you know, basically it's a turf war that we're going to be the big Eva. Now uh, we're going to be the leaders of the resistance and they're well, fighting a decentralized movement. And it's not going to work is lar- largely a point that he was making. But I think, you know,
1: yeah, it, it, Scott, it, it, Annie- I mean,
0: Scott annual ain't going to cut it.
1: Yeah. It, and I mean, it's it's fair to also bring up. I mean, Michael O'Fallon has a ton of influence on uh, on this G three group. I mean, he's he's on the board, uh, but he is behind the scenes. And I mean, O'Fallon before um, he started with G three and started that, he he was uh, organizing the events for the Gospel Coalition. And so, I mean, you you can see in the structure and in the design and things like that, G three is similar to the Gospel Coalition. Um, within structure and design. I'm I'm not saying necessarily that they're, um, well, it, morally, some, well, you know, right, right, right. They're
0: not morally equivalent. N- but.
1: No, that, but I mean, there are going to be similarities it, structurally with that. And I mean, the Gospel Coalition was Big Eva. Um, and, and that's, I, I do think that is their goal, not necessarily to have the same uh, convictions as Big Eva, I hope, but to have that kind of influence as Big Eva.
0: And it would be a step in the right direction, but it, I think it's very clear that they aren't where they need to be on theology as it relates to a civil magistrate.
1: I, I don't – yeah, I don't know that they totally understand um, the how, – how to oppose. So I think they're good at recognizing cultural Marxism bad, um, but I don't think that they have a, a solution for how to cure cultural Marxism. I think that they're just really good at pointing out diseases. I don't think that they're very good at fixing things.
0: Yeah. I mean, and Virgil Walker is, you know, making some very bad arguments on this issue these last few days, but I love the fact that he's very influential, uh, otherwise in culture. And I love seeing him on fearless with Jason Whitlock. And, uh, especially as I didn't really like a lot of the other, I'm not huge on uh, the other religious figures on there. I'm just not, but, mm-hmm. uh, it's, the one white guy on on the show, he seems to run like some sort of docent research group, uh, come competitor. Yeah. It's like, that's shady. Um, Selling sermon preps and all that. But uh, anyway, uh, I I want them to have influence, but here's the thing. The church is one body with many parts. Some of these parts are going to be really strong on this issue of theology in the public square they're not one of those parts so they need to not fight those who are strong in this issue instead uh, you know let them be strong on this issue and not accuse them of being racist uh then we got the king of nineveh uh decreeing that people repent and fast is something that if done by a civil ruler today would be wrong according to G3 type of thinking that's from innovation HQ. I think that's uh, fairly accurate. You, and then you we know, got... that's, that's a huge
1: point right there that he made though, because if you look at the history of the United States, um, almost they did that, th- they did that. like um, time after time, after time, there were, there were days of uh, fasting that were prayer and fasting that were called in with that idea of repenting. And so, like, when they go and they say, well, you know, we don't want Christian laws. Well, they weren't—the the, the American presidents were doing this. We're not saying, hey, we want you to go pray to uh, to, to Thor or uh, them and, by the way, a man and a woman. I mean, they weren't doing those kind of things. There, It was obvious who they were saying that you needed to go and pray to. It's the God of heaven. Um, our first Navy flag it, it was that George Washington went and commissioned— is the appeal to heaven flag. Uh, I mean, like, think about that. That that was our first, uh, you know, flag that went up over any Navy uh, that Washington commissioned. um, You you know, the Revolutionary War was a flag that said, an appeal to heaven.
0: Oh, during the Revolutionary War. It's funny. America also invented, I believe, submarine warfare. Yeah. Like we did submarines before the Germans did. Obviously, you know... They didn't, you know, they had to come up for air a lot, but you, you when you can't fight a capital ship, you go underneath. That's yeah. kind of the thinking. And then uh, Robert Sparkman says, Alistair Begg is a solid older man with wisdom. Protestant Pope candidate? Like, I honestly don't hear enough about Alistair Beg because I've only ever heard good things and I don't hear enough. Well, no, something about Arizona seems to have good pastors.
1: Oh, I'm. i might Arizona, be thinking, right? I, 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 I thought he was. Uh, isn't he like a, a British guy, Alistair Begg?
0: I thought he's Arizona. I, I I'd have on. to go
1: and look. I, apparently, I don't hear very much about him either.
0: Yeah, but I've only ever heard good things. Uh, Smart, simple fit also says some sodomy laws back on the books would be wonderful. The recent development in Uganda is incredibly base. Uganda forever
1: um well and i mean so sodomy laws i believe the, uh we had them on the books until like 2010.
0: okay Alister bag is in toledo ohio huh
1: well totally i, I gotta on. go look uh, up alistair bag <laughs> he, he's a uh, scott okay okay so yeah I, I was thinking he had a funny accent i didn't realize he was in toledo but yeah uh
0: america uh montana viking says america is essentially Essentially, as tens of millions of people that have heard the gospel in the name of Christ Jesus Christ and sat under cultural Christianity for decades, trampling the blood of Christ underfoot. And I think this points to an issue not of Christian nationalism, but of not ro- unrobust teaching in the church. And they're blaming Christian nationalists for that. It's like the pastors condemning Christian nationalists, or that dude shooting the Christian nationalists in the meme and saying, "Why are the Christian nationalists doing this?" And that that that's kind of what I see. It's like. Yes, we can fix the problems in the church, but the layman largely can't do a whole lot in that fight. To some degree, like the layman aren't hiring professors at seminary. The layman can approve their pastor. They can move to a church that aligns with their views and they can, you know, fire their pastor and hold them to account. Right. That's largely what the layman can do. But what do the layman do the other six days of the week?
1: Yeah, well, and and I think when it when it comes to this idea of cultural Christianity, I I think that there is a, a backwards view of this. Um, part of the reason why we have a cultural Christianity is because is because we took Christianity out of the public sphere, and so therefore it only is cultural as opposed to Christian culture. Uh, and and with that idea of Christianity impacting the culture, and so I think that that's. The the issue is, is that we do go, the, the G3 guys are really good at finding the problem. Hey, this is bad. This isn't working. This isn't good, but they don't have the solution. The solution is to try a different flavor of pietism in their mind, uh, and to, as opposed to going and saying, no, we actually need to reinsert the authority of God because remember the civil government is to be a servant of God. It's, it's not a description of the government. Nero, was not a just guy punishing evil uh, and rewarding good. Um, it wasn't a description of Nero um, or or any Roman emperor at that point in time. It was a description for what or excuse me it was a prescription for what they were supposed to be. Uh, and when we go and we look at that in Romans 13, we need our government to be ministers of God so that people can go and see objective justice. Uh, biblical justice is what people would be going and looking at and holding up morality, and that doesn't necessarily lead somebody to get saved in the sense of that's all you need, uh, because you do need to hear the gospel from the Word of God, but it's that that when you hear the gospel, your conscience isn't warped uh, according to um, you know, a Romans one type society. And when your conscience is is being properly formed by family government and by civil government, that gospel has great fertile seed or that a great fertile soil for that seed to go into and plant itself. And that's the role of civil government as part of it is to go into do that's that. That's what we've so, seen
0: throughout history. Right. Like people and people think that the gospel was just simply preached in Europe, converted. Well, that happened, but there was a point where a critical mass was reached, where a Christian ruler uh, basically went Christian nationalist. And, you know, it happened with Rome. We can argue the merits of Constantine, but we can't argue that Constantine wasn't in, in impactful in the Christianization of Rome and what, you know, basically made Rome that, the you know, basically sent the Greek pantheon the way of the dodo bird.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That that started with him. I mean, obvious. Uh, you could say it started with Jesus, but uh, but obviously, that you know historically that was the uh, right. Yeah, the so we don't need, And I think Montana Viking is you know saying you know c- it cannot be fixed without re- regeneration, repentance, right? And obviously the fruit of the Spirit and the sanctification of Christians. I I think the question is how m- much of the population needs to repent or. Be regenerated in order for us to fix a lot of the issues that we're seeing right now as a society.
1: Yeah. Well, it, and I think, I think the nationalists answer
0: nationalists are saying not as many. We just need a committed minority. And maybe the G3 people are saying a, more than a super majority, 50% over 50%. Yeah.
1: Well, it, and I think that, you know, scripture is clear. It's uh, if my people who are called by my name, you know, it's. It, it, it would be the true Christians who need to go and to repent. And that's the thing that, that I think that we do need to understand is that the reason our nation is where it's at is not because of uh, Satan's dominion. It's not because of Satan's kingdom. He has the gates of hell. It's because Christians, people who are called by God's name, have not repented, have not done what they're supposed to do. And we haven't spent time personally repenting And when you spend time personally repenting, you go and you call out that repentance, even if you go and you look at uh, for other people to repent. But you go and you look at even Nehemiah, um, you know, where uh, where the walls were rebuilt. I mean, that's that's a big part of Christian nationalism right there. Right. Uh, Building walls. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, but it came with a a cupbearer repenting. Um, The issue that I think that we see is that there's not much repentance anywhere in the United States
0: yeah so the last question i want to talk about is the connection of yeah I probably should have talked about this earlier but when we were talking about presuppositional and classical because this is kind of in the same vein is like the way i see it like the connection between eschatology and christian nationalism where that plays into the debate because the way i see it yeah there's a lot of post mill people that i think are unironic or unironically affirming the accusation that you have to be post-mill to be christian nationalists and they're doing that to recruit in my opinion you know they want to advance post-millennialism which is probably the least popular theological eschatologic camp of eschatology uh, if i wanted to if we were to do a poll of this country it'd be bottom two i think I, yeah. Uh, and at least be in the bottom three i know that for sure right <laughs> yeah, if you want to include camps like preterism and stuff, but uh, to me, it seems like the people that are most fo- hyper focused on linking eschatology to Christian nationalism are dispensationalist uh, sorry, dispensational so, pre millennials, who, who, uh, who are least so, who are sorry. most uh, attaching the debate of Christian, they're most attaching Christian nationalism to an eschatology. I see this from right. the G3 camp, from the right. John Which, MacArthur uh, yeah. followers. Yes.
1: Yeah. So, so, so that's interesting because, um, both like, so I, I'm personally a dispensational and, and premillennial. um, pastor Kerry Gordon would be both, uh, pre and dispensational and going and looking at that. And of course, um, uh, we've both written books that I think would, uh, be categorized as Christian nationalist
0: books. Uh, right. <laughs> you, My you point know, is, and, to say, isn't to say that all, but n- I am just pointing out, the only no. people that are really doing it at all have this theology, right? Well, this view on the end so,
1: so one of the things that I've had to deal with, and this was um, in going and saying, I'm, you know, I see the the merits to to theonomy. I'm I, I'm a theonomist. and going and looking at that uh, is I had people accusing me of you're changing your eschatology. You're doing all of this and that, and um, I I haven't changed my eschatology, and it's because I don't believe that eschatology at all changes what our responsibility and what God's standard is it it, it doesn't change those things um now it, it might be one of those things that explains at times why we're not on the trajectory that we that uh that we wish we would be at but it doesn't change any obligation um at all and if we're going to go and to look at occupy until I come which is one which is you know a statement that, uh, that everybody except for perhaps preterists could go and, and, and accept. Um, you know, we look at that and we're going, well, if we're going to obey that that verse, that means we're going to be going and until Jesus comes back, doing everything in our power to obey him and to get more people to obey him. Um, whether that's, you know, whether you're all mill, post mill or pre mill. And so that's where I would say it's dangerous to attach um, an eschatology to Christian nationalism, but I do think that's going to be an interesting debate going forward um, if that ends up being the case. I don't foresee that being the direction of Christian nationalism for what I see at the
0: moment. Yeah, I I think that's a a mischaracterization that I see from people in John MacArthur's camp who are very heavily in, you know, the G3 people. They they said, you know, neither, uh, was it, neither John MacArthur nor... John Piper would affirm post-millennialism or Christ- Christian nationalism was uh, not, ver. I think I flipped the verbatim order, but they said that in the in the uh, Josh Bice article. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, you don't have to be post-mill to be a Christian nationalist. And again, John MacArthur pre-2020 uh, was not someone you want to be citing on civil government. And then John Piper is not someone at all that you want to be citing on civil government.
1: Yeah, well, I Uh, yeah, I'll just let the robbers and rapists rape my family well because I don't want to shoot them. You know, such
0: a bad article, and that was just one line. It's like, you think those are positive examples? I mean, yeah, the John MacArthur example was positive, but you didn't provide that caveat. But so, uh, yeah, I think that's the last topic that I wanted to cover was the eschatology end times at the end, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't see I don't see the connection, but I do see some people in a particular vein doing that because, you know, yeah. Steve Dace, you're from Iowa, so you're probably familiar. Yeah. Uh, Steve yeah. Dace has said on a couple of occasions that I, I remember, he talked about how post mill, the uh, post millennialists are the hardest to mobilize politically because they're such purists. Whereas the people with the pessimistic theology, you know, the dispensationalists will just do it because, you know, they know it's the right thing to do.
1: Yeah. I I think
0: that's pretty ironic, but
1: yeah. Well, and I, I I think it's, I think that is kind of ironic when you go and you look at that. And um, now part of that is because the post mill uh, crowd is, is so patient, right? Uh, So, so the problem is when you go and you look at the pre mill crowd, um, the pre mill crowd falls into pietism uh, and pastor Kerry Gordon goes over this in his book, a storm, a message in a bottle, um, something I'd highly recommend for people to read but the pre, the mill crowd falls into pietism when they go and they say uh, Jesus is coming back so we don't need to worry about anything you know instead of going and in, impacting politics, they're going out and trying to jump up every morning to see if they get caught in the rapture um, And then you have the post mill crowd you've got uh, they don't get involved in politics or involved in the way that they should and they fall they into pietism speak. because they're they're so uh, because they, yeah, beca- they become so book. patient. Yeah. I haven't read it, but I have the book. Oh, you you should read it. You should read it. That's uh... I am
0: terrible at reading, but I do have that book because I got it when yeah. I ordered the Christian, uh, the enemies within the church. Yeah. Uh, so I, so, so you, you got a signed that copy then
1: too. That should be signed right there in the, the cover, I think.
0: Uh, no, I don't think it is. I don't think oh, it gave not... that much. No, it is. It is signed. It is. Yeah. yeah now I got to read it. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. And that's just so happened to be right next to me because most of my books are like way back there, but I do have a couple near me. But yeah, it's like the people that just do it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. The people that think that Jesus is coming sooner are going to get busy living. uh, And the people that are playing the long game are actually more likely to be inactive because they're relying on the long game. So Mm
1: -hmm.
0: it's interesting that uh, point that you want to make. Oh, any, any, uh, last parting thoughts before I go into more housekeeping?
1: Uh, I just you know, really want to thank the, uh, the, the, people who, who put in questions and comments. I mean, that was incredible, incredible, uh, uh, you know, interaction there. I think that was awesome. Awesome. Yeah. indeed. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Uh, and then I want to say, Hey, if you like evangelical dark web support us, the least you can do is like, And subscribe if you're new Uh, the most you can do is we have a patreon like system at evangelicaldarkweb.org join that's linked in the description below and that gives you more access to more content but there is a newsletter that's completely free that i recommend uh subscribing to as well it gives you christian news in your inbox each and every morning bypassing the magical big sex censorships and stuff like that uh that that are very prevalent on social media and everything else Uh, so that's all I got for today and have a blessed night and we will catch you on the next one.